series of videos we do here at the People Midas Touch Network. This is where we hear from you, where you share your stories about family members, friends, colleagues, neighbors, just people you know in general who used to be in the Republican Party or were independents who sometimes voted Republican, sometimes voted Democrat, or people who have that same issue, who were not affiliated with any political parties, who simply can never, ever vote for any Republican, again, because of the fact that the MAGA Republicans have taken over the Republican Party. The Republican Party has left them. We feature your stories here, and then we ask you to please share your own stories in the comments if this is a story that uh, happened to you or a family member, coworker, colleague, neighbor, um, someone that you know, etc. So let's go and read some of these comments. This one is particularly um, provides me with a lot of hope, and I want to share this with you. All right, uh, Mark Burkansky writes the following: I was an independent voter since January sixth. I am now registered Democrat and will not vote for any Republican come twenty twenty four and beyond. Vote for blue wave everyone look no matter when you came to this realization if it was finally january 6th we welcome you to the pro-democracy coalition where truth and facts and objective evidence matters where compassion humanity and truly supporting our constitution matters next comment this comes from uh, lewis mccoy I left the GOP too. I am now a proud advocate of our President Biden and the Democratic Party. Jennifer Nelson writes, My husband and I were both Catholic and Republican. My child went to University of Illinois, is trans, and actually spoke in front of President Biden when he was vice president. Alex has traveled the United States teaching about sexual violence prevention to college students. Having Alex was the best thing to happen to our family. We are now recovering Catholic. Catholics and Democrat. Jennifer, thank you for sharing. And look, at the end of the day, we got to be in a compassionate system. We got to be in a system where humanity matters, where truth matters, where facts matter, and where politicians are focused on delivering things for people and not trying to take away freedoms that people like the MAGA Republicans are doing each and every day. R. Barley writes, I was a Republican for 40 years. I even voted for Trump in 2016. In 2020, I switched to Democrat. Welcome to the Pro-Democracy Coalition. Catmoro79 writes, I'm an independent but have voted for both parties at various times. I was so disgusted when John McCain asked Sarah Palin to be his VP that I was truly soured on the Republican Party. The way they have pandered to the extremist side of their party is sickening. Today's GOP's promotion of anarchy and violence is totally unacceptable. I will never vote Republican again. Thanks for sharing. Lane Anon writes, my boyfriend at 68 years old never got involved in politics and never voted. Trump running in 2020 caused him to register and vote Joe Biden. So proud of him. And just like Lane Anon, if you have someone in your family, friends, coworkers, colleagues, share these videos, show them, talk to them uh, about compassion, humanity, decency, intelligence, facts. Share with them the Midas Touch Network and make sure they are registered to vote. Start now. That's my biggest message. Start now having these conversations. Thomas Maynard, 7875, writes, 
I voted Republican from the time I joined the Marines in 1987. I'm now 54 and I'm now an independent. The Republican Party lost me forever when all of them voted against the PACT Act. I was at Camp Lejeune and now have Parkinson's and developed rectal cancer at the age of 48. The so-called Republicans used us for pawns in their game while after losing my rectum, having to deal with a colostomy bag and all that comes with Parkinson's, it's no game to me. There's nothing they can do to regain my trust. I'm sure I'm not the only veteran that feels this way. My father's Republican Party is dead. First off, Thomas, thank you for sharing that with us. We stand behind you here at the um, Midas Touch Network, not just with words, but through our actions to try to promote democracy and policies that benefit veterans each and every day. We've heard from so many veterans who share your story, you know, and I think the media, large media networks and trying to both sides, the issues, pay an outsized attention to the smaller amount of veterans who engage in bad acts regarding our democracy and our supporters of Trump. But I think overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, vets, people in the military realize that our freedoms, our, um, and, and their uh, and the trust between our government and veterans is dependent on a functioning government that actually delivers for the military, that delivers for veterans. You know, when MAGA Republicans, you know, they steal the symbols, the flag, the Constitution, they take it and they say these things and they don't deliver, though. And it's about actually delivering for the people. You remember when the MAGA Republicans fist bumped each other and celebrated when they were blocking the PACT Act that President Biden and Democrats were pushing. That should be a bipartisan bill. Republicans laughing as they fist bump each other to deprive veterans of critical health care. They found that to be funny. And they did that because they were upset at the CHIPS Act passing. The fact that a $50 billion investment in the United States semiconductor industry passed. So they were going to take the fact that more jobs were coming to America and retaliate against Biden by blocking the PACT Act. To your point, they treat this like a game. This isn't a game. This is not a game, politics. It is delivering things for people. Um, next comment. This is from Poodles for You. I have a toy poodle as well. I was a lifelong Republican until Trump was elected. The GOP has gotten worse since Trump. I will never vote GOP again. Tom Fortson, 2684, writes, I was a Republican from my first opportunity to register in 1969 until the Tea Party showed me their true face. No longer were they riding white horses and wearing white hats. They had turned angry about everyone and everything. Now I am proud to be a Democrat supporting decency and compassion for all. And my wife and my mother were both Republicans, both switched to Democrat when I did. We all woke up. Exactly what you said there. It's decency, compassion, intelligence, a functioning government. Look, do I agree with everything the Democrats do or President Biden does? I, I don't. I disagree on a lot of things. However, delivering results for the people compassionately, uh, with humanity, with dignity, and with intelligence, grappling with problems, trying to be problem solvers. Diane Eve writes, 
I was raised a Republican in Maricopa County. My parents told me that Nixon was a great president. I graduated from BJU, a very conservative uh, read Republican religious university. I was living in Florida when Obama first ran for president. That was when I left the Republicans. I couldn't justify or excuse the rabid Tea Parties, but no, I just switched to independent. When Trump ran, I thought it was too ridiculous to be taken seriously. No thinking person would vote for him. I thought certainly no evangelical Christians. I voted for my sister's Rottweiler. I became a Democrat when Trump won. And while I am still a Christian, I no longer align myself with evangelical. I think we have betrayed our charter to love our neighbors as ourselves, all our neighbors. I was a Democrat monitor for first audit in Georgia. I will always be proud to be a part of that piece of history. Look, here at the Midas Touch Network, whatever your religious beliefs are, we respect that. And whether your religious beliefs are that you don't believe in it, we respect that too. The whole idea of separation of church and state is that government should not be endorsing a specific religion. And what you do privately, where you pray, what your religion is, you should be able to do that privately. And in terms of what religions should stand for, it should be compassion and love and helping. Um, and what the Republicans are doing goes against the values of like every single religion. Um, and, you know, and they co-opt it. They co-opt the imagery. And that's why, though, it's important we just have these conversations in very kind of sober, reasonable, rational ways together. These fireside chats, if you will, where we can just be like, look, we're better than that. We're better than that as a country, than this MAGA Republican fascist idiocracy. Next comment, Nick92065. Ben, my wife is a registered independent and I am a registered Democrat. She used to vote Republican or Democrat. Once Trump got onto the scene in 2015 and she saw what he was doing, she said she would never vote Republican again. She is now going to register as a Democrat. She has also said as a woman, she doesn't know how any woman could vote Republican. Thank you for sharing. Tammy Zeller, 9162. I am fiscally conservative who supports freedom and human rights. While I am a registered Republican, I look at the candidate and hear their message to make my choice. I am often voting the lesser of two evils, but it is an important vote. Sad fact is that either a Democrat or a Republican will be selected. Most voters are programmed that way. If you do not vote, write and vote. Vote outside these two parties at this point. I believe it is a wasted vote. This may deliver dire results for our country. I voted for Trump the first time and never again. I voted Biden and was so impressed by what he and the Democratic House and Senate were able to accomplish against all odds in two years. I will vote Democrat down the line to continue to experience that goodness. There is no other Republican candidate that is in tune with that. I uh, want to thank you for sharing that message. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's about results. Look what's happened in the past two years under Biden. Not what the propaganda, you know, is just what were the results? Infrastructure, CHIPS Act, PACT Act, Inflation Reduction Act, lowering prescription drug prices. The United States is the fastest growing GDP of all G7 nations in terms of inflation, has the least inflation of any G7 nation, despite the Republicans trying to pull our economy into a recession. The tactical moves that President Biden made avoided that. 
to me, it's about results. And it's about not even just the results, but attempting to deliver things. And that's what I appreciate about Democrats. Mona Bear 7287 writes, I met my now very close friend just after the 2020 election. I was rather dismayed when he admitted he had voted for Trump twice. Since this was inconsistent with what I knew of my friend, I asked questions and learned he was incredibly political, un- politically uninformed. I educated him. He's horrified that he ever voted Republican. But really, don't vote without doing at least the minimum to inform yourself. I hear the story all the time. It's never too late to have these conversations with people in your lives who are politically uninformed. Have the conversations. We make these videos so you can share these videos with people. Just tell them. Watch a few of them. You know, you can disagree, but just they're facts, they're evidence. When Midas Touch makes a video, it is focused on here is what someone's saying, here's what the court document shows, and you can make your own decision, but let's evaluate what the objective facts are. Grace Munoz2766 writes, My older sister was a staunch Republican all her adult life, while I was always blue. I loved debating policies with her, and neither of us got offended or angry. We accepted the differences. When Trump was nominated, she sadly left her party because she didn't like or trust that idiot. I didn't have to say a thing. She hasn't changed her mind. Thanks for sharing. KD6782, I'm a middle-class man who was a staunch conservative and Republican my entire life. I'm 68 years old now. As of 2016, I can no longer support the Republican Party because of Donald Trump. I will never vote for another Republican in my life. Catherine Gearhart writes, my 82-year-old mother, a lifelong Rockefeller Republican, is now solid blue. Way to go, Mom. Amelia V6771 writes, My wealthy parents and all their wealthy friends voted for Trump the first time expecting sanity, quickly realized the lunacy, did not vote for him the second time. That's what's so evident. It's the lunacy. It's the barrage of lies. It's the chaos. It's the fact that everything this individual, Trump's touched in his life, has gone bankrupt before he was in office. Bankrupt company, bankrupt company, bankrupt company, bankrupt company. If he's such a good businessman, why is everything going bankrupt, 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 bankrupt? Hundreds of lawsuits before he ever took office against him for not paying people who are owed money. That makes him smart. No, he's someone who has avoided paying taxes that he should be paying, pays more money in taxes to China than he paid here in the United States. And it's just an utter, an utter disaster and a chaos agent. I can go on and on, but you get it. Um, next comment. I'm a veteran. This is from Microbetta. I'm a veteran and was a Republican for over 35 years. My wife and I gave up our seats on our local Republican town committee and left the Republican Party, and here is why. I served on my local Republican town committee. I ran for local office as a Republican. I've manned phone banks to get out our local Republicans out to vote. I've served on municipal committees and commissions as a Republican. I've worked on many Republican campaigns from local town council to state and federal representatives. After all that, I'm called a rhino simply because I refuse to be a MAGA QAnon Republican. I'm called a rhino by keyboard warriors who blindly believe only their echo chambers tell them to believe. I no longer recognize the party I believed in all of those years. Thank you for sharing that. And that's one of the things that we talk about here. Yes, I am aligned with the Democratic Party right now. 
But if the Democratic Party started posting QAnon memes and conspiracies about satellite dishes, controlling mentally, controlling things and wacko crap, I'm not going to support them anymore. Like, it's that simple. I would say this. If President Biden sent out one QAnon meme, just one, for all of the stuff that I think he did great, he'd lose my support because we have to have standards. You can't be posting death cult memes. like. And Donald Trump has posted, I think, more than 525 of those since he created the social media platform Truth Social. By the way, Truth Social Pravda, the same thing with the Soviet Union called their newspaper, but that's an aside. And so to me, this Democratic Party is a pro-democracy coalition now. You have a pro-democracy coalition, Democrat, and you have this MAGA Republican, Trump, whatever the hell it is, fascist idiocracy. That's on the other side. Those are the choices now. And as President Biden said, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And that's what I do. I look at the alternative and I go, that is radical, dangerous, anti-American and horrific, horrifically dangerous to this country. And I look at President Biden, I look at the Democrats, I look at this pro-democracy coalition of Democrats, conservatives, liberals, progressives, people not affiliated with political party, I look at this coalition of decency, of humanity, of intelligence, and I say, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to focus on. I want results. I want to do things for the country. I want to deliver benefits. MAGA Republicans just talk about hate every single day. Anyway, thank you for sharing your stories. Share your story on the comments below right now. I'll read them on another video that we'll do in a week or two. So share your comments, share your stories, and um, look, make sure right now is the time to speak to people, to get out the message. You think about it, how many people watch these videos? If all of you just helped register voters and just did a small piece in the uh, 2024 election for the generals starting now, it's a game changer. It's a freaking game changer. Just start with one person. If you do more than that, home run. But just start with one. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. And check out the audio podcast, the Midas Touch podcast. Hit subscribe on YouTube. It is free. Have an amazing day. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. I'm Ken Harbaugh. What could possibly go wrong? This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. My guest today is Ryan Bussey, a former executive for a major firearms manufacturer. His book, Gunfight, exposes the industry's dramatic pivot towards a culture of fear and intolerance and the McCarthy-esque tactics they use against their own employees. Ryan, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks so much for having me today, Ken. I appreciate being here. Of course. Uh, I first learned about you a little over a year ago when I read an op-ed you wrote with the title, uh, Shootings Aren't a Sign America is Broken, It's Working Exactly as Intended. Let's start there. You imply that this era of mass shootings isn't some 
tragic byproduct of decisions by the gun industry. It actually has made them vastly wealthier by creating a climate of fear, which they continue to foment and which delivers massive profits. As someone who's been on the inside of this industry at the highest levels, can you help us understand the mindset of its executives? Because I have to believe that there's a serious degree of denial at a deep psychological level that, that's required to maintain this fiction that they are not individually a leading cause of kids being slaughtered. It's either that or they're just plain evil. Please help us understand. I think to, to and, and there is a denialism and, and um, jump to the very to the very front of this. If you ask any of them, many of them I considered friends, you know, close friends for a long time. Nobody, at least very few, uh, perhaps nobody thinks that they're doing this or advocates for doing it. But to understand how it's so unbelievably obvious, if you back up about 15, 18 years in the industry, um, everybody I knew sort of the intelligentsia, the, the wise men, as I, as I call them in the industry, knew um, not so very long ago that propagating the sorts of things that we are propagating into society now, and that includes not just things like AR-15s by the millions, but also very incendiary advertising, marketing campaigns, um, direct links to the most uh, politically toxic uh, figures in our nation's history. Um, those things did not happen in the industry 20 years ago. And it wasn't because laws were in place to keep those things from happening. They didn't happen because there was a voluntary prohibition against them in the industry. In other words, everybody kind of got together, said, yeah, um, we're not going to allow any display of tactical gear in the industry's own trade shows, which is an actual truth, right? There was no tactical gear allowed in the industry's own trade shows. Why? Well, again, it wasn't a law. It wasn't some nefarious socialist communist thing from the Joe Biden presidency. The industry itself said, eh, displaying or propagating or selling or marketing this stuff could lead to really bad outcomes. So here we are today where there are 500 companies doing this. The most egregious advertising you can ever consider is happening on a daily basis. So why is it that 20 years ago the industry knew, and I was a part of it then um, and proud to be in it, but why is it that the industry then knew not to do that? And here we are today uh, with it happening you know, at warp speed, have to think. If you knew it was bad 20 years ago and you're doing it at warp speed now, how did you not think we would not end up here? Of course we knew we would end up here. I grew up in a military family, joined the Navy. You grew up hunting. Can you describe for the rest of our audience, though, what you mean by tactical gear? Paint the picture of what a trade show looks like today. The images they're selling, the lifestyle. I mean, you refer to the tactical lifestyle and it is such a different picture than we had just 20 years ago uh, in, in these trade shows in gun-owning America writ large. How does it look today? So first off, um, the, the air quotes here, I've got my fingers up. The tactical market is now the leading driver of the firearms industry. Um, again, 18, 19 years ago, you could not, there was, it was not allowed in the industry trade shows to display tactical glove, helmet, 
something that the police officers wore, something a, ta- a SWAT team would wear, a bulletproof vest, uh, tactical boots, um, tactical guns, tactical ammunition, tactical optics. None of that was allowed. To understand why you, we should grasp what tactical means, the word tactical means planned military operation, right? It's something you plan. It's an offensive operation. You sit around in a planning room, you get your troops together, you give them the tactical gear, you send them out and they go do something. So it's not it's not like you're sitting at home defending yourself against an armed band of thugs, right? That's not, that's not what tactical is. It has nothing to do with self-defense. It's about being offensive. So again, 20 years ago, the industry said, yeah, like encouraging everybody to be offensive, yeah, probably a bad idea. So no tactical gear was allowed. Um, you walk through the sh- the biggest trade show, the biggest gun trade show in the world, which is usually held in Las Vegas. It's the big industry show. It's called SHOT Show, Shooting, Hunting, Outdoor Trade Show. Um, you walk through it, and not so long ago, the gun industry there appeared like what many people think the gun industry would. You know, target shotguns, hunting guns, some self-defense pistols, uh, the, the sort of thing that I think is, in my opinion, defensible, responsible firearms ownership. Um, that's what the whole show was. If you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to see tactical things or touch tactical things, you had to be either a credentialed military officer or a credentialed police officer. There was a cordoned off, um, you know, curtained off area of the show. You could go in there if you were one of these types of people, and you could see the tactical stuff because that's what the tactical stuff was for. Today, if you go in there, I don't even know how to describe to you. Nothing I would tell the listeners to prepare you for how shocking, how completely pervasive, how the tactical mindset, the tactical lifestyle. I mean, Kent, I am not lying to you when I tell you you can now buy tactical underwear in the SHOT Show. So it is all tactical, all the time. Long-range tactical, short-range tactical, AR-15s, 500 companies selling them. Probably between 500 and 1,000 companies selling tactical gear. Everything. I mean, you can buy tactical Tactical AF, as in tactical as fuck pants, right? Those are that's an actual kind of pant you can buy. I, if we had the next thirty days to list all the tactical gear that you see and can touch now in the shot show, we 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 don't have enough time. If this podcast ran twenty four seven, that's what it's like. And this stuff doesn't stay inside the trade show hangers. It spills out. It's everywhere. There's this passage in your book. Gunfight. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but you'll know exactly the one I'm talking about. Where you're with your sons at a at a BLM rally, and speaking of this offensive posture uh, in that's so pervasive in gun culture today, someone literally gets in your son's chest, finger in his chest, and you describe the weapon he's carrying, which is not a self-defense weapon. Can you relay that story for us as kind of the exclamation point on how this tactical lifestyle has spilled into the streets? Well, it's very interesting. When I, I had my book done, and um, when I was speaking with my editor, uh, my editor kept telling me, yes, you're, this, the book's awesome. We need one more scene. You need to remember one more thing to put the readers right in the middle, you know, put them there with you. And I kept telling her, I, I don't have anything else. Well, then we went down. This was June 6, 2020. Any of, I know a lot of us have tried to put 2020 out of our minds, but you remember the kind of social turmoil that was happening 2020. My kids, my wife and I went down to this rally in the middle of town. And there, 
at the rally were between 100 and 150, again, air quotes here, Second Amendment patriots. And I saw these people, and I thought, you know, for me, it was a little bit like as if I was like a food executive for a, for a mac and cheese company. And I walked in the store and I looked up on the shelf like, oh, there's my mac and cheese. That's the product I made. When I walked down there, that's and I saw all of these mostly guys, almost all guys. There were a few women, but they almost all were decked out in this tactical gear that we just discussed as if they were headed off to Fallujah. Um, they, they almost all had AR-15. Some of them had tactical shotguns. Some of them had handguns, too. And one of those people, my my youngest son Badge, I mean, dude, he's he's five five, five four, seventy pounds soaking wet, little blonde haired, blue eyed kid, and he's just chanting, I can't breathe with the rest of the high school kids and grade school kids there. And this guy gets in his face and starts screaming at him, this aren't one of these armed guys, and then starts poking him in the chest, calling him an evil bastard. And I lost it. I mean, not just because it was my son and I was very concerned for waving lighted matches around gasoline like that. It felt like the whole place could have exploded, which, and I I just feel like the whole country was that way. Um, But also it broke every norm of responsible gun behavior I could think of taking loaded guns into a place like that, intimidating people with them, open carry marching up and down the streets um, and if that wasn't sort of foretelling what we saw on January 6th, you know, well, we know it was. You addressed the breakdown of these social norms within the industry in a recent ProPublica interview. You, you said that there wasn't a time too long ago, maybe 15 to 20 years, when the industry understood, understood that a sort of fragile social contract needed to be maintained on something as immensely powerful as the freedom to own guns. And so the industry didn't do certain things. You've talked about this already. Didn't ad- advertise in egregiously irresponsible ways. It didn't put company growth above all other things. There were just unspoken codes of conduct the industry knew not to violate. If those were upheld by social norms that have since crumbled, is there any hope that societal pressure uh, and 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 a return to those social norms can steer the industry back to being responsible, or are we way past that point? You know where I'm going with this. Is it time for the kind of legislation that is sometimes required to to correct a breakdown in social order? Well, on one hand, I'm really kind of hopeful that we can fix it. And the reason I say that is because I lived in the industry these very conscious decisions were made. It's not like gravity came down upon us and we're like, oh man, have to live with this new law of physics. It's not that way at all. And it's the same way with our politics, really, if you think about it. So many of the things that happened during the Trump years were not legal issues, although we're dealing with his legalities now. Um, they were breakdowns in norms. They were they were things we chose. Well, we can unchoose them. Um, that's... So in that way, it's really quite simple to fix it. It doesn't require two-thirds votes in the United States Senate. It doesn't require veto overrides. It doesn't cover. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean we need bombast from senators and Congress people to get all this done. They're just norms we chose. We could unchoose them. Now, as we both know, it's a lot easier to say that than to reinstitute um, norms of behavior. I um, I have long believed that. It, for gun rights, the most pro-Second Amendment position is the most ardently responsible position because 
I think this is the most, this right that we have to do with firearms in the United States is probably the most important and fragile thing about our democracy. We, um, we entrust ourselves as citizens to own something very powerful and that, and that can remove rights of many, many other citizens in just a couple seconds. And with that kind of right comes immense, immense responsibility. And I think as with so, other, so many other places in our country right now, our balance between rights and responsibility is really out of whack. And so I think we either, we as citizens, especially gun owners, like myself, I'm a proud gun owner, own lots of them, hunt and shoot with my boys, believe in self-defense. Either we refined this balance of responsibility um, or, or the people of the country are going to find it for us. I'd rather do it voluntarily. I think you invoked John Adams in your TED talk, um, talking do, about yeah. the the requirement for that balance between rights and responsibilities. I'm wondering if within the industry, even at your level at the at the top of the industry, is there a nuanced understanding or even any understanding of the history of the Second Amendment, uh, or is it just a third grade level literal reading without any of the context behind it. I mean, you know, went to went to Yale Law, we thought about it seriously. It's pretty clear to any constitutional scholar that the rights invoked by the gun industry aren't actually enshrined in the Constitution. You don't have a right to a bazooka. Uh, you don't have a constitutional right to 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 an atomic weapon. Um, and yet that that's where the line of thinking seems to go every time you in, engage in a constitutional argument. Is there a serious conversation within the industry about what the the founding document actually prescribes? Well, there was. Um, I'm worried about where we are now. I, my my answer to you is right now. I'm not sure and I'm scared shitless about what the answer might actually be. Um, there certainly was um, right up until the last few years. And again, if this sounds like it's mirroring our politics, you, you could ask this same thing about Republican politics, right? You could say, these people, are they just doing this for show or do they really believe the election was stolen? And up until about six months ago, I'd say, oh, come on, it's just for show. And now I'm like, oh, man. I'm thinking they believe it. Um, and it, it's quite similar to that in the firearms industry forever for my existence. Everybody understood that, again, this balance of responsibilities and rights meant that certain um, municipalities, states, regions, whatever, had the right to impose different regulations because the Constitution allowed that. Um, and the best thing that the firearms industry could do was maintain that social compact so that the regulations were not onerous or the balance didn't get out of whack. And and that meant things. In fact, the industry, most people that I knew, certainly after Sandy Hook, um, were for extending universal background checks. In other words, small, uh, reasonable, really non-debatable sort of policies that um, were responsible things to do. Today, I'm worried that this Second Amendment absolutism idea, meaning, I mean, you joked about can't own a bazooka. I think it would scare you to know how many people associate with the industry now. Yeah, I'm not joking. They're not joking. I mean, when, 
they're not joking. They they literally interpret the Second Amendment as a blanket uh, authorization to acquire and own um, as a private citizen any arms. I mean, it says the right to bear arms, and they interpret that with without. Well, you would you would find. I used to joke. I'm like, come on. You don't need an, you need an A-10 Warthog fighter plane parked in your driveway, right? And 10 years ago, people were like, uh, have another beer, Bussy. That's crazy. I mean, now if you say that, I think you get half the people say, well, hell, yes, I do. I can yeah. own one. Marjorie Taylor Greene just recently tweeted out, um, where can I, or maybe it was Lone Boebert. They're all the same, right? Where can I get an F-15 asking for a friend? And, you yeah. know, a little tongue-in-cheek, but it, it illuminates this slippery slope that you're talking about. Well, it ain't slippery, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like a cliff. And um, again, it's, you know, the sort of the through line in my book is that if you want to understand what's going to happen in our politics, the just look at what happens in the firearms industry, because it's a forward indicator of what's coming in our politics. And the sort of things that people like me and gun owners, across, really responsible gun owners across America thought were unthinkable, crazy talk five or eight years ago are now right in the heart of um, what I would call sort of the firearms rights movement. Same way, same things happening in Republican politics. You would say, come on, nobody's really going to jump on this QAnon bandwagon. We have elected officials who are QAnon adherents now. So the same thing's happening. Thanks for watching, everyone. We've got a quick message from our show sponsor. But first, I've got a favor to ask. Growing a show like Burn the Boats depends on you. There was a time when thoughtful interviews with interesting guests could stand on their own, but these days, the algorithm is everything. The recommendations that show up in the feeds of YouTube viewers and podcast listeners depend on the reviews that shows like this get. So please give us a thumbs up, follow this channel, and if you're up for it, please consider clicking on the link to the podcast page and leaving us a five-star review. It makes a huge difference. Thanks. Green Chef has expanded their menu. Now choose from over 50 weekly menu and market items with the option to mix and match meals in the same box without changing your plan. Get everything you need at Green Market, our one-stop shop for quick breakfasts, brunch kits, wholesome lunches, and more you can easily add on to your weekly order. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with meals that work for you, not the other way around. Celebrate summer with seasonal recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood. Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. Green Chef offsets 100% of their delivery emissions to your door, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. Plus, Nearly all packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas in the U.S. Bring more flavor to your table this summer with Green Chef's delicious, nutritionist-approved recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables and unique farm-fresh ingredients like tart cherries, truffle zest, and rainbow carrots. My absolute favorite is the spicy chicken and broccoli stir-fry delicious. Go to greenchef.com slash Boats 60 and use code Boats 60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. As I've gotten older, I have noticed that on the occasions when I have an alcoholic drink, I don't bounce back the next morning the way I did when I was younger until I discovered Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. 
It was invented by PhDs to tackle mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best the next day. The first time I tried Zbiotics was at a wedding. As instructed, I drank a bottle of Zbiotics before any alcohol and was amazed at how I felt the next day. Every time I have a Zbiotics before drinking, it makes such a difference the next day. Even after drinks the night before, I know I'll be able to get back to my daily routine like working out or mowing the lawn. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com/boats to get 15% off your first order when you use boats at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/boats and use the code boats at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics, originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher 3 times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and they feel as nice if not nicer than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores causing breakouts. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com/boats to try Miracle made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo boats at checkout, you'll get 3 free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 30-day money back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com/boats and use the code to claim your free 3-piece towel set and save 40% off. Thank you Miracle Made for sponsoring this episode. Hi Burn the Boats fans, I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention and Roan has stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection represents the most comfortable, breathable and flexible clothes I've ever found. Roan makes it so easy to get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips and polos. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way from your commute to work to weekends at the kids ball games. Looking good is easy with Roan's wrinkle release technology. 
which makes wrinkles magically disappear, seriously, as you wear the products. It's really that easy. I don't have time between work and family and everything in between to worry about dry cleaning or ironing with Roan. I don't have to. I just wear and go. And I feel great doing it. Even after a long day, Roan feels clean and new and just as comfortable as the moment I put it on. You gotta try it out. Head to roan.com slash boats and use promo code boats to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com slash boats and use code boats. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's roan.com slash boats. You said that there's no nuance left at at the NRA, and we'll talk about some of the even more extreme organizations as well. But when their rhetoric seems to have gone to like the maximum um, fear mongering extent possible, where do they go from there? If they are literally at the point where they are convincing their followers and their political mouthpieces are parroting this, that uh, the, the socialist government of Joe Biden is coming after every gun. How do you how do you keep ramping that up? I mean, I guess there's a there's a hopeful element to this question in that at some point rhetoric becomes so absurd that its purveyors lose authority, lose moral authority, lose credibility. You've been in this world longer than I have. Where do you see it going? Well, you can. um I'd like to think you're right, that, that, that there is this jump the shark moment where reasonable people in the country say, OK, obviously these people are crazy. Um, they have been. They're espousing things that are nuts. Right. I've missed my guess a few times, though, about how soon we're going to get here, because I thought we've reached that point about four or five times already. Yeah, me too. To give you an idea of, of where this is going, and it goes right back to the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um, the country from the 1930s to 2008, we basically went 75, 80 years without without really any meaningful Second Amendment um, Supreme Court case. And for the most part, during that time, uh, gun legislation, gun laws were ruled by a U.S. Supreme Court case called Miller. I don't remember the rest of the you, – you, you maybe do. But essentially it said you balance rights – with the needs of a society that needs to remain safe. So every law that came before the Supreme Court had this balancing aspect. People want to be safe and maintain their rights, and we also have the right to own guns. Scalia with Heller upended that, and then Bruin last year really upended that. And so the NRA has seen all this sort of like a dog catching the car, and now the NRA has gone from, yes, we have the right to own guns, yes, we have the right to self-defense, again, things that I believe to now jack it up a little bit more. Now they say, you must own guns to be ready for an armed civil war. You mu- Not you can, not you have the rights. You must, you have a patriotic duty to buy guns to be ready to use against your fellow citizens when the time is right. So you see, it now it's gone from self-defense to prepare yourself to shoot fellow citizens and be proud of it. Um, we are, the industry is preparing people for an armed civil war. People are training and engaging and arming themselves for an armed civil war. I say it's sort of like you dump 50 million hammers into society. Somebody's going to find a freaking nail, and that's what I'm worried about. Me too. We, we've had some 
shocking conversations uh, recently on this show with people like Stan McChrystal, who are terribly worried about this. And, and he would know, right? He led our counterinsurgency efforts in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I've got to ask, though, and, and back to your encounter with this Second Amendment patriot, so-called, mm-hmm. at the protest with your sons, how tough are these guys really? I, I just... I, I encounter them as well, and I think about the guys and women I served with overseas and how most of them just laugh at the cosplay, at the tactical lifestyle, as you described it. Can you shed some light on like the, the mentality of people who dress up like that, who compensate for something in their lives by wearing tactical AF underwear? So I think... Two things can be true here. First off, your insinuation about the degree to which they're jokes. We, in the industry, we had two words for them. Some people call them tactards. Some people call them couch commandos. Okay. And so you can get from those, um, neither one of those terribly politically correct terms, the degree to which the industry itself sees these people as jokes. So yes, there are that, you know, you, you, you've all seen the pictures it's easy to joke about them. I think most of them are gutless. Most of them are cosplay. But an increasing amount are ex-Special Forces guys, are military officers themselves, actually have some training. And this is a lot like January 6th, right? A lot of those people were jokes. Just enough of them actually knew what they were doing. And I guess I think of it again back to that match and gasoline thing. Even if most of those matches are limp and wet, it only takes one really hot one right next to the gas, and a lot of damage can be done pretty quick. So I think your, I think your insinuation is, is right to a large degree, but I'm worried about the small instances where it's wrong. That is such a validation of a thesis I've been working on for, for a long time. The vast majority are clowns, but it really doesn't take many force multipliers, as yeah. we say in the military, to marshal that energy and that propensity for violence to do incredible damage, as we saw on January 6th. The tactical formations on January 6th that led the breaches, those were disciplined folks. A lot of them were, were vets. So I, I well, see exactly... Thousands and thousands of people there. Think if you just had 50 with loaded, or 20 with loaded ARs and a bunch of 30 round magazines going to town. I mean, 10, five. Um, man, that would have been, some, I mean, that could have turned into something unbelievably tragic. Yeah. You focus a lot on the NRA, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that there are even more extreme groups out there. And part of the NRA's trajectory to the extremist position they're in was an attempt to protect that that flank, to, to counter the extremism of, of other groups and claim that ground. You were actually part of that. Um, I, I don't know if, if, if this is an opportunity for you to explain your role in in forcing the NRA to some of this extremist position when it came to um, security locks on on weapons, but that was an attempt by the NRA to make sure that that their membership wasn't siphoned off by even more extreme organizations. But those extremists still exist, and in some ways, they're even more frightening than the NRA, right? 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll start. I'll roll it back a little bit. You're referring to the, the Smith and Wesson agreement with the Clinton administration in two, 1999 and 2000. I was a, a pretty new kid, 20, 28-year-old, 27-year-old kid in the industry then. And um, I did participate when Smith and Wesson, when the CEO of Smith and Wesson jumped on stage with Bill Clinton and kind of announced to the industry that he had struck a deal. Um, the industry freaked out, like, oh, gosh, we're going to have to live with all these onerous marketing requirements. It, it was, to simplify it, it was a bit like the cigarette settlements, which proceeded um, and which everybody was very worried about. And so Smith & Wesson, to, to try to end run that, um, decided to strike a deal with the Clinton administration. And they tried to speak for the whole industry. And I liken it, I liken my participation then kind of like a kid in World War II. I you know, I didn't have to be told anything. I just jumped. I just ran to the recruiting office and started doing what somebody told me to do. And I helped organize a boycott against Smith and Wesson. And we basically ran them out of business and we got that deal killed. And I saw right then how the NRA and the industry was forming up really the beginnings of a very, very powerful cancel culture. Right. You step out of line, we'll run you out of business, we'll cost you your job. Um, Smith and Wesson soon after that was sold for 15 million with an M dollars because it was worthless. Um, it was bought, revived by people from the NRA. And in 2016, Smith & Wesson's market cap was 1.69 billion, 15 million to 1.69 billion. So it gives you an idea of how low Smith & Wesson was driven to what they became again. Um, and I think that now it, that became a precursor not just for how powerful the industry would be and keeping everybody in line, but what would eventually be done with right-wing politics too, right? That nobody steps out of line in the Trump administration, you get, you know, run out of, you know, you're, it's cost everything. Now what's happened, and the NRA did, um, their mindset, their organization did drive all of that. Now with the weakening of the NRA, which we've seen some, I mean, they're, they're, they're still an organization, they're still powerful. They, they, they're probably not, the apex of their power like they were a few years ago. So all around the fringes, these more radicalized groups are setting an even more radicalized path, and the industry is following them because it's just like the political base in the Republican Party. The, 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 the elected officials have to follow the radicalized base because that's where the voters are. Well, the NRA started NRAism, and then after it got weakened, it handed it off to these more radicalized groups who are taking the base in even more radicalized uh, directions, and the industry is following those people too. When I think about how society usually addresses social ills through legislation, through adapting social norms, I'm trying to see how that can be mapped on to our to our firearms crisis, because pick any other ill, uh, gambling, drinking, smoking, guns are different in that they last forever. They don't expire. A gun in society is going to be around for hundreds of years. Do we have the mindset to, to address the ubiquity of guns now. I think you wrote 400, 120 guns for every 100 Americans, over 400 million firearms, double today what we had just 20 years ago. And it's not like we can pull them out of circulation the way you can with, uh, with a consumable. No, and, and again, this is why I think this really, a lot of people don't want to deal with 
the issue of guns is kind of heavy. It seems intractable. Um, and yet, I think that this is the test of our democracy. Um, we either figure out a way to deal with this, and it's not going to be nothing in a democracy is perfect. I'm so over on both sides of this. Um, we have to have all guns all the time, or we're going to take people's guns. Come on. It's not the way democracy works. Definitely not ours. It's going to be messy in the middle, in the gray space. Welcome to doing the hard work of a democracy. Um, you make it a little bit better instead of making it a little bit worse. All of the facts and figures that you rightfully note in your lead into that question are big issues. Um, they're big problems slash opportunities slash both whatever. They're a test. Um, if we're going to have a right Again, as immensely powerful as the right to own guns, which means, I mean, with that thing in your hand, you have the ability to to literally take away dozens, if not hundreds, of people's life, liberty, and happiness in a few seconds. That's a pretty damn powerful right. If we can't balance that and figure that out in this messy gray space, um, I'm not real hopeful about the rest of the democracy. I make a point of reading uh, the the good and the bad comments on authors who we have on on the show, and you have made some some real enemies uh, after leaving the industry, especially after writing Gunfight. I think the NSSF called you a self-aggrandizing corporate hypocrite, bloviating about gun control uh, to the to the liberal media. First of all, congratulations. I think you can judge somebody as much by the enemies the they have. <laughs> and that's the good things to say about me. You have paid a personal cost for, for speaking out. Um, this is a, a complicated lead-in to, to a question about leadership, patriotism, and, and fatherhood, because we're having this conversation around Father's Day. I think we're going to release it on Fourth of July. How do you talk to your sons about patriotism and standing up for what's right, regardless of the cost? Yes, um, and, and I appreciate the compliments. And yes, sometimes I don't remember. I think it, perhaps Teddy Roosevelt said something one time about how you can be measured by your enemies just as much as you can be measured by your friends. So yeah, there's some there's some credit to be taken there, but. You know, my boys and I and my wife, we don't spend a lot of time analyzing. And a lot of people said, are you sad you did it? Are you regretting? I, I just got to the point I didn't feel like I had any choice. Um, the day we went to that BLM rally, we didn't feel like we had any choice. The, it, we, it needed to be done. Uh, the degree to which the industry was off the rail. I have a lot of people who worked in the industry or still work in it, who quietly call me and say, thank you for doing this. It's way worse than you say it is. Somebody's got to say it. I'm like, well, you, you know, you put your name on a byline in the Atlantic too. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. But so I get it. Maybe I did more and more publicly than, than most people will, but I, I still don't view it as a hard decision. I don't view it. It wasn't like a touch and go, oh gosh, should I do it? Um, it's so, it so obviously needs to be done and said that somebody had to do it. Not sequitur, but not really. Can you talk about what your boys are up to now with uh, Held versus Montana? Yeah, so I'm um, on the day we're recording this here. I'm going to head to trial with them in about 20 minutes. Um, they are part of a groundbreaking climate lawsuit against the state of Montana, um, essentially alleging that the 
outright 100% focus on fossil fuels and the crushing of renewables um, by the state, which is essentially a policy by the state, violates these kids' right to a clean and healthful environment. And that phrase, clean and healthful environment, is deliberately written in the Constitution of Montana. And unlike a lot of, and this was a, it's, a, it's such a magical time I've sat in trial all week watching this. Unlike um, constitutional questions in the United States, we still have nine of the hundred framers, still nine of the framers of the 1972 Montana Constitution alive, including the one who 